Lord Jesus, you are sovereign. And that is very good. Please rule tonight. Please equip me to speak with confidence. Give me the right words. Give me the understanding I need. Please, by your Spirit, speak to us. Show us what we need to see in this passage tonight. Challenge our hearts, encourage our hearts, uh, and and then help us to, to sing your praises and worship afterwards. Amen. So for a few months we've been studying Nehemiah. Um, It's exciting. We're coming towards the end of the book. Just to recap, we've seen since chapter 1, back in February, we've seen Israel returning from exile. And under the guidance of Nehemiah and under the faithful provision of their God, they have rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, despite opposition. That was chapters 1 to 6. And we've seen chapters 7 to 10, the people returning to the land and and the priest Ezra reading to them again from the book of the law. And over a week they hear their history through again and their faithfulness of the Lord, their covenant God. And they, they hear about their forefathers' faithlessness. And as, as they hear about that, the people have both grieved and worshipped. And they've confessed their faithlessness and they've recommitted themselves to living in accordance with God's ways. And then over the last couple of weeks we've been looking at chapters 11 and 12 and there we have the list of people who resettle in Jerusalem itself. And Nehemiah's great project is drawing to a close. Now we'll finish the book in two weeks' time as Andy looks at chapter 13 with us but, but our passage tonight is really almost the end point. They've built the walls and now they have this dedication ceremony in chapter 12 and I think here we see what it was all for. We see what this re-established city of Jerusalem is supposed to look like. So here's my headline for tonight. The Lord's covenant with his people stands and so they will worship him. That should be popping up there. Let's take the first bit for now. So we'll see that in Nehemiah 12, 27-47, I hope. It is another difficult Nehemiah-ish passage. There are loads of unfamiliar names, loads of unfamiliar places, but, but we'll try and chew it over. I'll, I'll read that. Read with me from the bottom of page 497. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps and lyres. The musicians also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophathites, from Beth Gilgal, and from the area of Geba and Asmaveth. For the musicians had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right, towards the Dung Gate. Hashiah and half the leaders of Judah followed them, along with Azariah, Ezra, Meshalem, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, as well as some priests with trumpets. And also, Zechariah, son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zachar, the son of Asaph, and his associates, Shemaiah, Azarel, Melalai, Gilalai, Mai, Nathanel, uh, yeah, Judah, and Hanani with musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God. 
Ezra, the teacher of the law, led the procession. At the fountain gate, they continued directly up the steps of the city of David on the ascent to the wall and passed above the site of David's palace to the water gate on the east. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall, together with half the people, past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, over the gate of Ephraim, the Jeshona gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, as far as the sheep gate. At the gate of the guard, they stopped. The two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. So did I, together with half the officials, as well as the priests, Eliakim, Masiah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Elionai, Zechariah, and Hananiah with their trumpets, and also Masiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehohanan, Malkijah, Elam, and Ezer. The choirs sang under the direction of Jezrahiah, and on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. At that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions, first fruits and tithes. From the fields around the towns, they were to bring into the storerooms the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites, for Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did also the musicians and gatekeepers, according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there had been directors for the musicians and for the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So, in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the musicians and the gatekeepers. They also set aside the portion for the other Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. So, another chewy passage, and a lot of it will skim straight past us because... It's unfamiliar, they're odd names, we don't know the culture or the geography, but we can get our teeth into it. My headline for tonight comes in two chunks. The Lord's covenant with his people stands. And the reason I want to start with that is that it really strikes me as we read through this book, that so much of it is anchored in the past. Nehemiah was looking back. Back in chapter 1, Nehemiah's whole motivation is mourning for the disgrace that has come on his city, for what has been lost. His grand project, it's not about building something new, it's about restoring and rebuilding. And when chapter 11, people move back into Jerusalem, Nehemiah lists them and emphasises that they are descendants of Judah and Benjamin. It matters who their fathers were. The priests who have recognised Levite lineages. Indeed, the the chief Levite officer, who's mentioned here, we're told in 11 verse 22, he's Uzi, who is a descendant of Asaph. And and that's a name we're meant to recognise. Asaph was a key leader of worship in King David's time. If you look through the Psalms, 12 of them are attributed to him. He, He ministered in Jerusalem at the high point of Israel's history. And then in the first half of chapter 12 that we looked at last week, priests and Levites are listed and we're told that they served in verse 24 as prescribed by David, the man of God. All through the book, Nehemiah has been harking back to a time of former glory. And now, as we hit this dedication ceremony, he carries on doing the same thing. We see that in three places, I think. So, look at verse 35. 
and see that among all of the names he gives, he singles out one to give a full genealogy. Zechariah, son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zechariah, the son of Asaph. And how did they serve in verse 36? With, with musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God. And where did they go? Verse 37, up the steps of the city of David, past the site of David's palace. Then the cons of 45 to 47. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did also the musicians and gatekeepers, according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there had been directors for the musicians and for the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So, in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah. It seems to me that throughout this book, but but certainly here, Nehemiah is making this point that his his story and this dedication ceremony are anchored and imitating the past. Pointing back to the heyday of Israel. It was the time of, of great King David, the man of God. Of Asaph who directed the musicians in praise and thanksgiving. He He's looking backwards. Not in that sort of uncomfortable, unhealthy way that the British often do. You know, hankering for the good old days of empire when Britannia ruled the ways. None of that. There's no hint of vainglory. There's no historical revision. Nehemiah is people that are profoundly aware of historical failures. We see that in chapter 9. And, and next time we'll see that Nehemiah was fully conscious of flaws in Jerusalem even at the end of his project. Rather, he's pointing back to the high point of Israel when the Lord had established his kingdom. And he's saying, what was true then is also true now. What made King David great is what's making this a great occasion. The Lord was faithful to his covenant then. He's faithful to it now throughout this book. Despite hundreds of years of downhill slide under faithless rulers. Despite 70 years in exile in a foreign land. Nonetheless, the Lord's covenant stands. And they know it. He's re-established Jerusalem. He's filled it with his people. Those promises made in the far distant past to Abraham that, that God's people would live in God's kingdom, blessed by his rule as a blessing to the nations, those are as true here in Nehemiah 12 as they were in the time of David. And that's why, <clears throat> that's why this isn't a celebration of nationalist pride. Well, in verse 27 and verse 31 and verse 40, you see it's about thanksgiving every time. Because the Lord's covenant stands. And in verse 43, because God has given them great joy. It was God who moved the king to send Nehemiah in chapter 2. It was God who helped them build the wall. They recognise that in chapter 6 verse 16 and it, it terrifies the enemies. The Lord's covenant with his people stands and for frail Israel for Nehemiah's first readers that's a crucial message if God's faithfulness to his covenant has stood this far then despite their flaws as a nation and we see some of that elsewhere in the book despite that 
the Lord's faithful covenant with his people will continue to stand. They're secure. And faced with the recognition of that, Nehemiah shows us the appropriate response. They worship him. There was a, a wonderful document that that preachers love to refer to called the Westminster Catechism. It's composed in 1646 by a group of scholars and theologians and it it tries to set out the core beliefs of the Christian faith with 150 questions and answers, Um, 107 in the children's version, which make a a good youth group series. Uh, Both of those start with the question, what is the chief end of man? What, What are humans for? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Let's say that our whole purpose is to praise the Lord and delight in him. That's the Christian worldview. And we see something of that here in Nehemiah 12. He's presented with a temple re-established. A wall rebuilt, a city repopulated, God's covenant shown still to stand. Nehemiah is not bragging about the state of the nation or economic success or any of the traditional markers of a successful government. Instead, he shows us a people united in praise. God's covenant with his people stands and so they worship him. This is what it's all been for. And that's what this dedication ceremony is a picture of. And I think that the pattern for the reborn nation. Let's look at what that worship is like. I've got five observations about it from this passage. I suppose they're five challenges. Um, First thing to notice. Look at the, the tone and focus of the event. Perhaps you're just popping in. Perhaps you're visiting. Perhaps you wouldn't consider yourself a believer. So... Ask yourself, from an outsider's point of view, what's Christian worship like? What do you anticipate when you step through the doors of a church? Or if you're a regular, think, if you asked your neighbours or colleagues or friends what church was about, what are they going to say? What are they expecting to see? I think one of the stereotypes that that my colleagues and friends would have is is that Christian worship is the the dour, sombre, guilty congregation. People who don't know how to live fully. They're not as free as the rest of the world. They miss out on the fun. Christianity is often seen as so negative and restricting and joyless. But but Nehemiah 12 is painting a different picture. Verse 27, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving, with music of cymbals and harps and lyres. It's a party. Notice the twin focus. There's worshipping. It's not about guilt and restriction. It's celebration and thanksgiving. So they're acknowledging and they're recognising what the Lord has done and then revelling in it. Celebrating. And ultimately that's how believers glorify God. You see it all over the Psalms as you read through, don't you? They they acknowledge and recognise what God has done, what he's like, and then they sing it back to him. Thanksgiving, that's our chief end. I'll ask a silly question. Just one. 
Um, do you ever find it hard to pray? Do you ever struggle when praying, whether with others or alone? Do you not know what to say, how to start? I do. If you struggle like me, Nehemiah gives us a great tip. At the heart of worship, at the heart of prayer, it's thanksgiving. Often just talking through the things that God has done, acknowledging his work, speaking through the cross, telling it back to him. Often that's a great way to start good prayers, and to start honest worship. That's why our best hymns and worship songs aren't just catchy tunes, are they? They're, they're lyrically rich. They remind us of the things that God has done. The certainty and the sureness of the covenant that is established and stands. Chief end of man is to glorify the Lord, but also to enjoy him. To revel in him. So here there's thanksgiving, but off the back of that celebration, I think that the tone of chapter 12 is not sombre and funereal, is it? It is serious. It feels like they might have rehearsed it. It's an important occasion. But it's joyful through and through, isn't it? See, verse 27, they celebrate joyfully. And then again in verse 43, he really rams it home there. He's not subtle. The priests rejoiced because God had given them great joy. The women and children rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing could be heard far away. It's pushed there. So I ask, is that how we feel when we come to church? Does joy ring out? Is my experience of God to enjoy him and delight in his presence? Am I focusing on the wrong stuff sometimes? Second observation. Uh, Worship requires purification. See that in verse 30? Before they do anything else in the ceremony, the priests purify themselves and then they purify the people. And then they purify the gates and the wall. Ostensibly, Nehemiah is a a book about building a wall. But but this verse kind of says otherwise, doesn't it? The gates and the wall, they are the last thing to be sorted out. They're just brickwork. Nehemiah is really about rebuilding a people. Bringing them back into God's city. Showing them that he has remained faithful. That his covenant with their ancestors still stands. Verse 30 recognises that that having that wall is going to be useless if they're not walking in step with their God. If they're not already richly clean before him. Now for them, that's going to mean a whole raft of animal sacrifices which were detailed in the law that they'd spent seven days reading in chapter 8. They could not come before God to worship until their guilt has been dealt with. That's potentially unhelpful for us, though. We're in a different place, aren't we? We don't need to scrabble for purity before a Sunday service. To be a Christian is to be in a different tent. It's to have been washed clean. We can read in the the letter to the Hebrews about Jesus, the great high priest, the one who sacrificed once for all sins and then sat down, his work done, And and the wonderful result of that is that I I don't have to keep sacrificing. Now, to be a Christian is to have been marked as righteous by Jesus. 
so that we always and irrevocably have the privilege of being able to interact with our God. Brothers and sisters, if you find yourself struggling with that, if you find yourself too guilty or too conscious of your inadequacy or your failure to change, and you find yourself thinking that you are not righteous or good enough to come to church or to share communion or to be accepted in a community of believers, please take heart. We are not pure enough. We are by nature objects of wrath. But the the astounding core of the New Testament message is that while we were still far off, Jesus gave himself. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. So don't let the devil deceive you. Don't doubt that the Lord can and has purified his people. Perhaps talk it through with a a Christian friend. Talk it through with one of us. or, Or read and pray through Romans 8 or a hundred other good passages. We don't need to purify ourselves like this. But having said that, there's something to be learned from it, isn't there? Maybe your failing is more like I often slip into. I am blasé about my sin. I think back sometimes on the times that church services or singing have left me cold. When I've struggled to get my teeth into some good work, whether it's it's sermon prep or or caring for needy friends, or or when I've found it tough to engage with an aspect of church, whether that's house group or youth work or whatever. How often has that been because I've got a barrier up? A wrong priority? Something that I need to do business with God about and repent of before I try to kid myself that I'm in the right place. Before they could praise the Lord, they needed purification. And we have that in Jesus. The covenant stands. But wisdom dictates that before we try and come before him, we get our hearts and our heads in the right state. That's why our services involve repenting together, surrendering, clinging to him for our purity. Because unless we cling to him for purity, unless I find my safety and my, my worth in him, what have I got to be thankful for? What have I got to celebrate? Third observation. Look at the people involved. I think it's fair to say we're a fairly low church congregation. We've got no no choirs and no incense. So perhaps verse 28 is even more alien to us than to some. Uh, In ancient Israel, there were families among the Levites who inherited the special task of being musicians and leading the people in sung worship. And they made up the choirs and they played the instruments. People like Asaph and his descendants. And, of course, we no longer have those inherited roles. Our inheritance in the new covenant is different. It's because we are baptised into Jesus' line. And so... New Testament writers like Peter describe us as a nation of priests and I suppose in the same way we're a nation of musicians. You wouldn't believe it to hear me play the guitar. We, we don't have to send Matthew and Cat off to build their own village of musicians. They're allowed to stay. It's, it's good news for you guys. But, but it is interesting to see that there are professional musicians at work here. Leading the worship is given a high priority. It deserves resources. 
It's part of the teaching. Equipping and helping the people to give thanks and celebrate. It matters. Of course, that's not fair to say that we fail as a church when we don't have good music. We're blessed at the moment with many skilled musicians. But there, there have been times where we've struggled to rustle up one shaky guitarist. And I was the shakiest of them. You know? The Lord's not going to reject us for that. But it is worth making it a priority. The worship of the Lord, the celebration of what he's done, the corporate singing of his praises, they're valuable parts of church life, not an optional extra. They're a great part of training and equipping us and giving thanks and celebrating. They're a great way to teach us and remind us of what we can be thankful for. And and so they're worth devoting our effort and our resources to. If you've got those skills, do nurture them. But then, if like me you're not very musical, there's a risk of being alienated at that stage. So do look at the flip side of the same point. Look who else is involved in this passage. And Nehemiah does this thing he's got of giving loads and loads of names. So he goes through the political leaders, he goes through musicians and priests for one choir, and then he does the same for the other choir, and then he shows it's opened even further. Do you see in verse 38, half the people follow each choir the whole nation in verse 43 the women and children who who might otherwise have been overlooked they are involved too and the point is that everyone is in on it it's not the preserve of experts to be part of God's people is to be included in worshipping him that's the consequence of knowing his covenant I think Nehemiah does something really interesting here And back in February, I spoke on chapter 3. Maybe keep a finger in chapter 12 and and flick back and forth quickly. Chapter 3 is on page 485. Um, In chapter 3, he lists which people built which parts of the wall. And Nehemiah pulls a similar trick of, of showing the whole breadth and range of Israel working together. Now here in chapter 12, as he describes the root of each choir, we can look back to chapter 3 and trace their steps to it. So they seem to start between verse 12 and 13, or maybe in verse 13, at the valley gate. The first choir, we get in chapter 12, verse 31, they set off towards the dung gate and walk on round towards the water gate. So they're going forwards through chapter 3, towards the end. And the second choir start in the same place, but they go in the other direction. So they're going backwards, back towards verse 1, towards the sheep gate. And he names a bunch of the same places in each section. And then there were loads of names in both chapters. And there's overlap. So in chapter 12, you have Azariah and Meshalom in verse 33, Benjamin in verse 34, Shemaiah in verse 36, Malchijah and Ezer in verse 42, and I may have missed others, but those are all names that are familiar from chapter 3. And I wonder if he's making a deliberate point. They're worshipping with a vested interest. They're in the city they've built. They're worshipping where they live, where they serve, where they're committed, where they've seen God at work, where they depend on his faithfulness day by day. Worship is led by experts, but it includes everyone, where they live and where they've laboured. Fourth point, and, and this one is very brief, but important. Come on there, yes. 
It's just always worth reminding ourselves of this. Their, their worship is heard by the nations around them. We see it in verse 43. The sound of rejoicing could be heard far away. It's just a throwaway line. But as, as he's tying this worship back to what it should look like, I don't think he's lost sight of the promise made to Abraham that his descendants would be a blessing for the whole earth. And likewise, our worship is meant to be seen. It's not about just inside here, is it? It's about showing the glory of the Lord to the world around us. Last observation then. Um, no surprise, it, it includes surfeit, service and giving. So, so far I've been focused entirely on this act of corporate worship together. Their, their lovely celebration, their singing, their rejoicing. And that's important. It doesn't have to be musical. It, it doesn't have to be loud or conform to a particular style. But you'd be very cautious of a church that met without some kind of corporate celebration. But worship does extend further into the rest of our lives. We get that picture throughout the Bible. And we get a bit of it here in verses 44 to 47. I think this chunk is particularly important as, as he's painting the picture of the Lord's covenant being met. Even in, in the kingdoms of Israel and Judah's darkest days after David, on, on the downhill slope, they that still had the temple and the Levites. They'd had people who would lead them in ritual and worship, even if it was often degraded and useless. But the law that they'd studied in chapter 8 also set out a whole financial system. Tithes and relief from debt and provision for the vulnerable. And the impression we get historically is that most of that fell by the wayside almost immediately. For example, every 50 years, all debt was to be written off in a year of jubilee and there is no record of that ever happening. Martin Luther wrote about three conversions being needed to become a Christian. First, the head being convinced, then the heart, and, and then only finally the wallet. That being the convincing marker for him, that someone actually believes the gospel, that they consider their money valueless in comparison. So see what Nehemiah is saying here. The people have seen that the covenant stands. And so they've instituted the law as it should be as it probably hadn't been since the time of David. They're not just dedicating the wall in this one-off, happy, clappy ceremony. They're, they're willing to give appropriately, to give continuously, year on year, to support the priests and musicians and temple servants. They're prepared to give of their time. They're okay to be appointed to take responsibility for storerooms and practical things, not so glamorous. And that makes sense for them. Because they can see that they're worshipping in the city and in the temple that they've built through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They know this is theirs. They, they know their part in it. They can see their inheritance growing. And it's secure because they can see how the Lord has faithfully established them. Five observations. What do we take from this then? As we continue tonight and then as we amble home afterwards and get on with our weeks. I think straightforwardly it's the headline. God's covenant faithfulness to his people stands. 
Nehemiah in this book has gone from mourning in exile in chapter 1 through to the city walls being complete and dedicated here and all Israel celebrating together. God's people in the book have gone from ragtag exiles who were mocked by their enemies to an established, defended city. His faithfulness to Israel has not failed. And as is so often the case when we read the Old Testament, we get to say, we, we see so much more. We see the fulfilment of all of their hopes in Jesus. Messiah came. And the law was fulfilled in the way that they never could. We get to see the new covenant that the Lord makes for his people. One where everyone can come to him. One where, as Peter writes it in 1 Peter chapter 2, we who have trusted in Jesus are built like living stones into the city and house of God. We get to see what, what Nehemiah was only a picture of. We get to see that paid for and achieved at the cross. And then gloriously confirmed as Jesus is resurrected three days later. God's power shown, death defeated. And then we get to read forwards into Revelation. And we have the promise of a new city to come where the Lord will dwell with his people forever. If this wasn't a white British middle class church, I think there'd be a hallelujah at that point. Yeah. Yeah, if these guys were celebrating joyfully, how, how should I feel? We can worship, can't we? In spirit and truth, as the New Testament puts it. That's with our whole hearts, guided by the Holy Spirit, responding to a gospel that we've received. We, we've been given something for which we can give thanks. But also in truth, informed with knowledge of Scripture, fed deeply. Let me pray for us.